Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. Last Sunday, we began looking at the many doubts that people have related to science and the Bible, the book of Genesis and evolution, and various ones in our survey about faith and doubt shared this tension that they feel uh, sometimes as a false dichotomy, which is basically like, I have to choose God or I have to choose science or I have to reject God or I have to reject science. Like, I can't choose both. And so we looked at the understanding the book of Genesis in its ancient context. Genesis wasn't written to answer the questions that we always have about, say, Darwin's theories or how this world, this universe was created exactly. How did this all come together? Because the authors couldn't have imagined some of the questions that we ask. The authors also didn't mind using similar origin stories, similar language, similar themes, common understandings of the cultures around them to make meaning differently and to make necessary corrections. Over the centuries, biblical interpreters have gone three different directions with the Adam and Eve stories. They have looked at those creation narratives as Adam and Eve are historic people. They have looked at the uh, Adam and Eve stories as parables, symbolic stories. They have looked at them as stories of Israel's loss of wisdom and exile, like this mini story of Israel. And I will remind you that I'm not here to convince you of, say, a young earth theory or an old earth theory. If God one day tells me or shows me how it all happened, no matter how it happened, I will say, hallelujah, that's amazing. Personally, I don't choose just one of these choices as the right one. I don't choose one of these readings as the right reading. I wasn't there. I don't know how it all went down. And I think scripture carries a surplus of meaning. And personally, I've experienced all three of these readings of the Adam and Eve stories as speaking something important to my heart. I believe the Spirit has used each of these interpretations to speak a living, active, vital word to millions and millions of people's hearts down through history. So I don't need to come to one of these interpretive directions and say, well, I'm certain it's this one. So wherever you're coming from, as you are wrestling with these questions, I want you to know that there's space at the table in this church family for you. 
So let's begin by laying out six different views of creation that Christians of deep and abiding faith hold. And with each view, I'll name some upsides and some challenges. So jumping right in, first of all, there's the literal six-day view, uh, which says that, just like Genesis 1 says, the world was created in six days, and uh, Genesis 2, Adam and Eve were historic people. Some upsides of this interpretation, this view, you get to take at least one of the creation stories at face value, which feels good. Uh, another upside, Genesis 1 verse 30 describes God creating a world of goodness with no animal violence. Uh, God says, and to the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. It's Genesis 1 verse 30. So if you're going to take a literal six-day view, you get to run with that. You don't have to wrestle with how to understand a world that is red in tooth and claw evolving through struggle and animal violence and bloodshed, survival of the fittest. You don't have to run with that conundrum. You can just run with a world created out of pure goodness. And that's a real upside. A challenge or some challenges to a literal six-day view include it's impossible to read both creation stories literally. The Genesis 1 creation account and the Genesis 2 creation account. You have to choose one of them that you're going to somehow uh, read in a non-literal way to make them fit together. Otherwise, you are cramming puzzle pieces together and they, you're breaking cardboard. These, these things don't fit. Also, the fossil record doesn't line up. And what are you going to do about dinosaurs? What are you going to say about dinosaurs? Also, the literal six-day view is relatively recent in church history in the sense that it's mainly a response to evolutionary theory. It tends to be the view that treats Genesis as a science book, the challenge, of course, being that Genesis 1 also endorses a view that would be a flat earth and a sky made of water. So Genesis 1.6 describes God separating the waters below from the waters above, which you might skip right over if you're not sure what that's saying. In the ancient Near East, they looked out at the sky and because it was blue, they believed that the sky was made of water. They thought they lived in some kind of a dome, kind of like it's been compared to living in a snow globe. And so they were looking out like you are a, a little human in an aquarium almost. Like the waters above, what that was referring to in Genesis 1 they thought that those were waters out there in the sky, the ocean of the heavens, and that dome was holding back the waters. And they thought that they were living, they saw the world as a flat disk. That's how it looked to them under the 
land, they thought there was more water. And they thought that the mountains were like the pillars holding up the dome and the waters surrounding them on literally every side, underneath, overhead, the ocean, all around them. They saw that water as chaos. And when it rained and stormed, they were experiencing holes in that dome and the waters were pouring in or sprinkling in. So unless you are a flat earther and actually believe that the sky is made of water, then you already have a challenge to read Genesis literally, like reading it as a science textbook. So that's a challenge. Uh, a final challenge is, okay, what are you doing with the scientific theory of evolution? Uh, we probably need to just name what is a scientific theory. Because a lot of people hear that word and go different ways, like, ah, it's just a theory. So that word theory is only given when the empirical data and the observations from experiments, like experiment after experiment after experiment, when all of that data points in the same direction over a very long period of time, it requires broad scientific inquiry a great deal of evidence coming from a wide variety of sources that have been tested over and over and over. And then it's finally given this title. It's a scientific theory, like theory of relativity or germ theory or gravitational theory or evolutionary theory. The percentage of scientists who say that humans evolved to their current form is in the high 90th percentile. So if you're taking a literal six-day view, that's one of the challenges. The next view that Christians of deep and abiding faith hold, intelligent design, and I should say of, uh, of all of these views, sometimes they overlap, so don't be surprised. Some of the upsides of intelligent design. So intelligent design argues that living organisms are irreducibly complex, that we did not evolve from something else, and that at the lowest forms of life, life is still massively complex. This view's main focus is on refuting evolutionary theory. So it would look at things like the complexity of the eyeball or the flagellum on bacteria that is like a little outboard motor with a little prop. And that they would say like, wow, that's at such a low level of low life form. It's on bacteria, but it's this engineering marvel in one of the lowest life forms. And so it would say, wow, this, this has all the signs of intelligent design. Uh, a strength and upside is that this view is looking for supernatural causes, not only natural causes. Now, it depends who's uh, evaluating intelligent design, because one of the challenges is that intelligent design is not recognized as credible science because it does not subscribe to the scientific method because it's looking for supernatural causes. Uh, so <laughs> it's the strength and, and weakness depending who's evaluating. Um, also, this view does not necessarily propose one certain 
reading of the book of Genesis, these two creation accounts. It's just saying, look, this, this stuff didn't evolve. There's an intelligent design. So if that's all you hold, you still have to figure out, well, what am I doing with these creation accounts? And finally, intelligent design is very recent because it views evolutionary theory as promoting atheism and it's a little more of a reaction. So that's intelligent design. Gap theory. Another view that Christians of deep and abiding faith hold. Gap theory says that millions or billions of years exist between the first two verses of Genesis. So they still believe the six days happened, but only after millions or billions of years for the earth to form. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, long pause, and now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. So that's where your gap is. This view doesn't subscribe to any kind of evolutionary theory. It is not inserting evolutionary theory into that gap. Now, for upsides, no matter how far back scientists date the world, with gap theory, we can just say, well, we, we chalk it up to it fits between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2. Uh, we say, well, that just fits into the gap. Another upside, the world is still created out of goodness. We don't have to wrestle with the animal violence stuff in, say, evolutionary theory. Some challenges to gap theory. Gap theory still doesn't answer any of the other problems we named with the literal six-day view, like which creation account will we read as literal? What are we going to do with the scientific consensus on evolutionary theory? What about the dinosaur? What about dinosaurs? What about the fossil record? It doesn't answer those. Another view. View number four that Christians of deep and abiding faith hold, day-age theory. So the days in the book of Genesis, the days of creation accounts, are not understood in this view to represent literal 24-hour periods, but eons of time. Each day is years and years and years and years in this view. As many have pointed out, they say, how could we understand the first three days of creation in the book of Genesis, Genesis 1, as literal days? Because the sun, moon, and stars were not even created until day four. And so with this view, it finally takes the fossil record seriously with the Cambrian explosion that shows this wide diversity of species all showing up between like 500 and 600 million years ago, it takes that seriously. The day-age theory also takes the Big Bang seriously. Props to Arno Penzias, Robert Wilson's discovery in 1965, uh, and NASA's project, the Cosmic Background Explorer, or COBE, Scientists have been able to see and measure these heat waves radiating out from the Big Bang and actually calculate 
the expansion rate of the universe. And so day H theory takes this seriously. Uh, physicist Stephen Hawking, looking at this expansion rate of the universe from the Big Bang, he writes this. He says, if the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in 100,000 million million, the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size. And scientist Francis Collins points out that on the other hand, if the rate of expansion had been greater by even one part in a million, stars and planets could not have been able to form. So the existence of the universe as we know it rests upon a knife edge of improbability. So that's a major strength of the day-age theory. It's taking the Big Bang discoveries seriously. Uh, a final upside of the day-age theory is you have early church fathers, people like Augustine and Cyprian, that they had no idea about the Big Bang discovery, but they were already putting forward versions of this kind of an idea as they argued against a literal six-day reading of Genesis. And that was back in like the third and fourth century. They were saying, I'm not sure we should take this as literal. Some challenges to the day-age theory. The day-age theory still doesn't exactly answer evolutionary theory. Like, what, what are we doing with that? And another big question is, are we actually proposing with day-age theory that there were eons and eons of animals with no animal violence? Like, uh, that, the, the idea of there being no animal violence would be contra. It wouldn't run with the fossil record. The fossil record shows animals eating other animals. So that's another challenge. Uh, as well, you still have to figure out how to reconcile the two different creation accounts. Like, are you reading one or both more symbolically in some way? So that's the day-age theory. Now, to take just a little break, uh, like a fun side note, Check it out because <laughs> we've got a couple more to go. But a fun side note, there's a Jewish mathematician and scientist, Gerald Schroeder, who looks at how time dilation works with the stretching of space. And he says when space is stretched, it affects the perception of time. It distorts time. And so he says when you try to measure the age of the universe from the vantage point of Earth, then the universe appears to be approximately 14 to 15 billion years old, which is what most scientists say. But he says if you measure the point of, from the point of origin, from the origin of the Big Bang, and you try to measure the age of the universe from there, his formula just happens to come up with the universe being, the age of the universe being six days. <laughs> kind of wild. All right, moving on. Literary framework theory. View number five, a view that Christians of deep and abiding faith hold. 
Uh, I am not listing the upsides or challenges as uh, one thing. I'm saying this could go either way for folks. So this view understands the creation story as a symbolic story or an allegory with deeply significant theological truth for the people of Israel. It seeks to read equally from the book of words and the book of nature. So it's not trying to throw one or the other away. Uh, this view would also claim uh, St. Augustine as an early proponent. Similarly, just what he's saying can, can lean towards this view. If the Genesis story is symbology, if it is allegory, then we're not left trying to make the creation accounts somehow fit with science. And some people view that as a relief, and some people view that as a problem. So it could be an upside or a challenge. Finally, the final view that Christians of deep and abiding faith hold is theistic evolution or biologos. As coined by Francis Collins, who decoded the human genome, uh, wrote the book Language of God. So, evolutionary creation says that evolution is real and that it was set in motion by God. Some upsides to this view, the study of creation declares the glory of God, and so this view would allow science, the study of creation, to actually declare the glory of God. It wouldn't have to be contra science. Uh, you don't have to disagree with science. And you can still be open, you can still be humble, because the nature of science is that new discoveries are always being made. Scientists are always trying to upset the current understandings, debunk the current understanding. Uh, so you can be open. God's Creation Act, with this view, it actually looks that much more incredible. See, in a literal six-day view, it's like God, with a game of pool, hit each of the balls into their own pocket on the pool table individually. But with theistic evolution evolu or evolutionary creation, it's this view that God hit this massive trick shot in the game of pool. Like, God hits that cue ball just one time, and somehow God hits it just right so that each ball miraculously bounces off the other one in such a way that they all go into their own designated pockets. Uh, going back to like the precision of the Big Bang, where it, if it was different, just one part in a hundred thousand million million, this would have all collapsed. It's looking at the way that God got this going and saying, wow, that is so much precision. Uh, a quote from Charles Darwin, the, the father of evolution, this theory, he says this in his book, The Origin of Species. 
He says, I see no good reason why the views given in this volume should shock the religious feelings of anyone. And right at the end of the book says, there is grandeur in this view of life with its several powers, having been originally breathed by the creator into a few forms or into one. And that whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity from so simple a beginning, endless forms of most beautiful and most wonderful have been and are being evolved. So those are some of the upsides, the, the challenges of theistic evolution go like this. You have to figure out what to do with a world beginning out of struggle, out of survival of the fittest, the dark side of nature where animals eat one another, red in tooth and claw. It goes contra Genesis 1.30. Some theologians would see this as this early animal violence as a way that the principalities and powers were already trying to distort God's creation even before humans were created in the image of God, even before humans were corrupted in any way. That would be how some theologians respond to that question. Another challenge for theistic evolution is that the fossil record Specifically, the Cambrian explosion shows a multiplicity of fully formed creatures rather than like transitional forms all appearing at once. So it begs the question, how does this line up? Another challenge is reading Genesis accounts symbolically. Some see that as a relief. Some see that as a challenge. So those are the six different views, and there are others. I'm not saying these are the only views, but these are six of the views that Christians hold of creation, Christians of deep and abiding faith, people who are brilliant and reasonable, and they hold each of these views. Now, I'll remind you, no matter your view, there is room at the table for you. So a discussion question. You might anticipate that I invite you to say your position, but I don't want to do that. I want to invite you to do something else. If you're listening with someone, share with them. If not, just reflect. So speak well about the faith of someone else, someone who holds a view other than the one that you lean towards. How might their faith be good and beautiful and authentic? So reflect on that. All right. Christians historically have really struggled when the discoveries of science pushed or challenged their reading of the Bible. Here's an example. 
around 500 years ago, there were brilliant scientists, Christian scientists, mathematicians, astronomers like Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, these people who were challenging the idea that the Earth was the center of everything and that the sun revolves around it, they proposed that their research, their math, their geometry pointed towards the Earth actually revolving around the sun. And the Catholic Church claimed that this view was incompatible with the Bible. They looked at verses like Psalm 93, verse 1, the world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. They looked at Psalm 104, 5, he set the earth on its foundation, it can never be moved. Psalm 104, 5, he set the earth on its foundation, it can never be moved. And so responses from church leaders said that geometry is of the devil and that all mathematicians should be banished as the authors of all heresies. And all the teenagers said, Amen. <laughs> they said things like, uh, you know, this discovery is negating the whole Christian plan of salvation and it's casting suspicion on the incarnation. And so Galileo, as one of these people, was tried by the Roman Inquisition in 1633 and forced to basically detest, renounce all of his discoveries. His writings were banned. He was forced to remain under house arrest for the rest of his life. Now that was 500 years ago. And we all know, basically, nearly all of us except now, that yeah, the earth does revolve around the sun. And that doesn't mess up our reading of the Bible. That doesn't mess up our understanding of Christian salvation or the incarnation. And so it begs the question, well, what is science discovering now that we fear might ruin Christian faith? Responses to scientific discoveries in our day really aren't always that different. We tend to have kind of a knee-jerk reaction. And I wonder if part of that resistance has to do with science getting pushed too far and being treated as the answer to every question, when in fact there are questions that science is unable to answer. And I think that might be what we have to recognize so that we don't do the knee-jerk thing. Like science is unable to answer some of the most crucial questions of your life. Why am I here? Who am I? Who will love me? What is my purpose? How can I understand my suffering and make meaning in my life? What's going to happen to me after I die? Those are some of the most crucial questions, and guess what? Science can't answer them. Science can point towards the universe having a beginning, having a Big Bang, but science is unable to say who or what caused that Big Bang. Yes, science can reduce you down to your parts, like molecules, atoms, cells, hormones, neurochemicals, neurons, etc. But 
Why does that feel so depersonalizing? Every time someone reduces you down to your parts, like why do you know deep down in your guts that you are somehow more than the sum of your parts? When you lose a loved one, why do you know that you lost so much more than a bit of tissue and fiber and cells, mostly made up of water anyways? As theologian Greg Boyd points out, science is unable to explain why we have longings that nature is unable to supply. Like if the universe is amoral and not rational and there's no good or evil, if all we are, if all anything is, is molecules bumping into one another, then science really can't explain why we long for good to overcome evil or why we have a sense of morality or why we long for a rational universe, why we long for things to make sense. Science can't explain our desire for love to win, especially when that love means selflessness and bearing others' burdens and forgiveness and loving your enemy and going the extra mile and turning the other cheek. Science can't explain why we find beauty in the Grand Canyon or looking at the ocean or a waterfall or a sunset. I mean, it's if it's all just molecules bumping into one another, why does it take our breath away? Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says, science takes things apart to see how they work. Religion puts them together to see what they mean. I have a friend, Vern Hinman, who's gone deep in both the world of science and the world of theology. He was a biomedical engineer in anesthesia, did research on the nervous system, also happens to hold a doctorate from Portland Seminary. I love the way he says it. He says, science is the way to find small truths. Yet, science is incapable of knitting small truths into a true narrative. The further science gets from small truths, the more science is guessing. Science can answer how and what in small whys, but only poets, philosophers, and theologians can come close to the accuracy that a lover knows by instinct. Scientists hand off to poets, poets hand off to lovers. And so this is where I want to end today. Christians can build up a lot of anxiety when they read what the Bible has to say on both ends of the Bible. Like, they can feel a lot of pressure to get the ends of the Bible figured out, the beginning of the world and the end of the world, Genesis and Revelation. So I want to diffuse some of that. You've been given this moment today to love God and to love your neighbor. And however it all happened, way back when, God was there. And however it happens at the end of history, God will be there. And no matter how it happened back then, it was according to God's creativity. And no matter how it will happen in the future, at the end of history, it will be according to God's creativity. And no matter how it happened back then, it was good. And no matter how it happens at the end of history, it will be good. So this is your moment that you get to live. You get to live in this world right now and celebrate its beauty. This is your moment to love God and to love your neighbor.
Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.